I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, this is proper Happy New Year. It is, because last week's, as we said, yeah. it was a pretend Happy New Year because we recorded it before Christmas. But well, it we... was a gangbusters episode. It really was, yeah. And, and uh, we've had a lovely response we have park run. to the Parkrun episode. And I'm well. going to be at Parkrun on Saturday morning, mm. hopefully picking you up. Doot, doot. Which, which morning Saturday are you morning? About? I can't this doot, Saturday. Doot. You can toot as much as you want. Right, okay. Something I wanted to mention is, yeah. is Ed popped round between Christmas and New Year. Yeah. And after you left, my son yes. was obsessed. He's just going, Ed, Ed, he's two and a half years old. He's going, Ed, more Ed, Ed. more Ed, more Ed. Yeah. So this this went on for a number of days. And I, I was away and my wife decided to put on the television on YouTube various clips of Ed speaking in the House of Commons and now, whenever my son wants to watch television, it, it's sometimes CBeebies, yeah. it's sometimes Cookie Monster, but sometimes it's more Ed, more Ed, oh, and he wants to watch sweet. YouTube videos. It's weird. Come on. I mean, even, uh, even you must admit that. No, it's brilliant. I mean, if only his father said that, that would, that would sort of you know, be brilliant. Because, of course, you famously said that my speeches weren't droning on. That's what you heard. That's not what I said. I mean, honestly, your son has got much better taste than you. Uh, and he's, you know, much more sort of politically wise, clearly. Uh, so, uh, so this week, then? So we're talking about something that I uh, was very much involved with, which is the Shelter Social Housing Commission, which came out this week recommending the building of 3.1 million new council and housing associations homes over the next 20 years, Um, which is a big number, certainly a big number compared to what we've done the last 30 or 40 years. We're going to be talking to a historian, John Bowton, who has written a great book called Municipal Dreams about the history of council housing, to set the scene, if you like. And then two of my fellow commissioners, both of whom have been conservative ministers, Baroness Saida Varsi, former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Chair of the Conservative Party, issuer of some press releases uh, which weren't very complimentary about me, although, as we'll find out, she balked at some that had been suggested to her, and and but a really, really uh, intelligent and, and, and decent person, and Jim O'Neill, uh, Lord O'Neill, um, who never been a member of the Tory party, was a minister uh, under David Cameron's government, 
working on the Northern Powerhouse and also a fellow commissioner. And and when when you say it's ten point how much billion a year? It's ten point seven billion a year. So the, these like, when you start using numbers in the yeah. billion, it sounds like telephone numbers to somebody like me. How how different is that to what, what we spent historically? I mean, I think the the easiest way of thinking about it is in the. 30 years or so after the Second World War, governments, Labour and Conservative, built about 126,000 council and housing association homes each and every year. In the last 30 years, it's been something like 27,000, so like 100,000 a year less. That's over 30 years. That's a lot of houses not built. Um, and in like last year, it was only 6,000 social homes. So, you know, we're talking about the fact that basically... After the Second World War, lots of homes were being built. And our central argument of the Shelter Commission is this is important for people to go to go and live in these homes, obviously. The, the vision of council housing and social housing has got to become once more not just about those in the greatest need. Obviously, that's important. But whether it's older people approaching retirement, stuck in the private sector, families who can't afford to buy. So that's important. But But also, crucially, Building social homes matters to those who don't live in them, because if you don't build enough social homes, the private sector is never going to be able to pick up the slack. You don't have enough houses. House prices shoot up. You have all the problems of homelessness, all the problems of a private rented sector that is really expensive. Do you see what I mean? So yeah, yes. It's it touches a, on all these. Yeah, different... it's like social housing, building enough social homes, the conclusion of this commission was is the bedrock of a properly functioning housing market. And we certainly don't have that in this country. And this is something you've thrown yourself into in recent months. Totally. In the last year, you know, partly on the back of the horrific Grenfell Tower fire, and, and we met uh, some of the people who lived in Grenfell Tower as part of this commission. And, and I just and, and just a knowledge, I don't think that, that neither Labour or Conservative governments have got this right for a generation and this is a real time for bold thinking. So this is a special episode, special in essence, uh, around that yeah. uh, that commission report. Right? Uh, shall I give you my reason to be cheerful? Go on. Yes. So I was in Salford at the weekend. Yes, as part of your Swiss Army knife, BBC. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you've been on five and yeah, two. Yeah, and doing so my temping, yeah. my temp, temp jobs. Yeah, and um, I mean, you're a man in demand. Well, I'm not sure about that. But because I was in the north, I, I uh, had time. To to kill. So I decided to go on a trip down memory lane yeah. and walk around the streets where I grew up in Macclesfield. Oh, wow. Like the, 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 specifically where I went to primary school and um and and the the street I grew up on from fairly much birth to age 11. So I was loitering outside this house and I can see like a little bit of twitching at the curtains going on. I thought, oh God, somebody's going to come out and speak to me. Yeah, and which is uh, obviously something you're always worried about. It, it, yeah, and 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 a fella comes out and starts doing something with his wheelie bin, and I recognise him. So I'm from a big family. My mum was from twelve. My dad was from seven. I've got a gajillion cousins, and and the guy who lives there now is one of my cousin's sons. And I got to go inside the house that I grew up in. That is amazing. I got to go in there and go into Your my old bedroom. bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Where, where you lived when, what age? From, from you know, when I was a tiny baby to 11. Amazing. Yeah. What's yours then? Well, my reason to be cheerful is, I'm actually torn. I've got two. So Chris Addison on our Christmas episode recommended something I'd never heard of, which is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, this Amazon production about a female comedian in New York in the 1950s, 60s, and how she sort of 
gets rid of her doofus husband who's a not very good comedian and becomes a successful comedian herself and Justine and I have really enjoyed watching it over Christmas and then secondly it's also an American thing Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez who I think you've probably heard of she's this 28 year old congresswoman I mean I think it is really interesting what she is doing, but she's come to Congress and most people, you know, they come into a parliament for the first time and they're sort of goody two shoes. I mean, that's probably what I was like when I became an MP. You know, you, don't, you mind your P's and Q's. Yeah. She's come on and she's like, we've got to do the Green New Deal, you know, which is this big environmental social justice thing. She's really put it on the map in the US. Uh, then the Republicans tried to attack her with some old video of her dancing in college i don't know whether you saw it as if dancing in college was a sort of sin i mean my dancing is a sin but i mean hers <laughs> but you didn't do that much hers, of it i didn't do too much of it and you know hopefully there's no record sort of public record of it but hers was not sinful anyway and she was brilliant and then she did she she sort of did a little dance outside her office in congress and that's i had like a gazillion views and i just thought there's something about incredibly refreshing about her sort of sort of stuff you attitude, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and sort of take no prisoners. And you're going to bring a bit of that into your own life. Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not pretending to be AOC, but, uh, which is what she's become known as. But, but it's more, I think people are sort of fed up of the, we've discussed this before, but fed up of the sort of conventions of politics. Yeah. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by John Boughton, who is a historian and author of, a really quite excellent book called Municipal Dreams, which is about the history of council housing in Britain. I uh, read it in advance of the final shelter report, and it, and it really taught me a lot. So, John, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ed. Pleased to be here. There's so much we could talk about here about the history. I mean, where do you start the history of council housing in Britain? Maybe is maybe one question to ask. Uh, well, I think you you start uh, in the in the 19th century. You start in the Industrial Revolution and the very rapid urbanisation of that era, uh, and you start in really atrocious conditions of working class housing, uh, slum housing on a on a huge and concentrated scale, uh, and the response that created from the initially from the Victorian upper classes. And where did that come from politically? It came from all all, all sectors really. I think there was a quite a powerful tradition of Tory democracy in the late nineteenth century. So you see. Uh, conservative politicians actually stressing uh, a duty of care towards the working class, uh, and in some respects more so than the liberals, who tended to take a free, more free market approach. Obviously, at the same time, there's a rise of the organised working class, the labour movement. So I think uh, both from from left, right, and and indeed centre, really. And the golden era, um, I, I think he's probably right to describe it that way, is the post 1945 period. Was yes. it, would that, is that right? I would actually just sort of like to contextualise that, I think, in the yeah. first instance. So so I think I'm, I'm going to go back, if that's OK. Sure. Because uh, I, I think the, the kind of context and the sort of existing structures are pretty important. Um, so we're talking about the mid-19th century and actually not initially a great desire to, to build public housing, as it were. Um, but nevertheless, a realisation that something had to be done. Uh, so in that context, of course, you have firstly the failure of uh, philanthropic housing, charitable efforts which simply couldn't provide housing on the scale required um, what you have crucially and I think this is a kind of per- perpetual factor is the failure of the private sector uh, private builders to build decent and affordable housing for working class people in that context uh, in 1890 
the step states in with the housing of the Working Classes Act. And this combines with a, a new structure of local government, county councils, district councils, which provides the machinery for this uh, move towards public housing to be implemented. So by 1914, you have the basic structures, systems in place, but only around 24,000 council homes built at that time. Obviously, the First World War is really important. Uh, the Homes for Heroes, this year we're celebrating the centenary of the 1919 Addison Act, which was really the, the, the most important single uh, piece of legislation, I would argue, um, primarily because whereas uh, previous legislation had been kind of permissive, it, it had given local government the power to build council housing, uh, the 1919 Act required that they do so, required that they survey housing needs and that they prepare a programme to respond to them. Um, so, so by 1919, you have a, a powerful dynamic and there's around 1.1 million council homes built by 1939. Wow. 10% of the population right. by that period. So 45 obviously is really important and obvious thing to say, of course, is the, the, the landslide labour victory the slogan and the commitment to, to winning the peace, to building a, a post-war settlement that would actually uh, treat working-class people decently and, and uh, honourably. Um, I think what's really important also is the kind of machinery of state, obviously unprecedented wartime powers to control the economy and direct the economy. And you also have, I think, a, a really emergent, uh, powerful emergent idea of planning and the notion that up to this point... The economy, society had been largely unplanned um, and that actually we had both the, the, the means and we should have the motive to actually plan uh, the economy and society to actually specifically, for example, provide a decent housing for as many people as possible. So 45, that landslide labour victory, I think is a, is a culmination, but a very decisive one of some quite long-term trends. And And... Was there an idealism in the design when you look at a lot of things around that era? This is the idea about a better future. When you look at the actual design of the, the homes, was that present in that? Uh, I think certainly for Bevan it was. Um, so Nye Bevan was the well known as the Minister for Health, but was also in charge of housing. Absolutely, yeah. So Nye, Nye Bevan was, uh, as, as, as we know, a dynamic figure. I think he was a, a very idealistic figure, but somebody that was also very concerned to get things done. So I think he was a very uh, accomplished politician in that respect. So if you look at most, most of the housing built up to 1939, it, it was very solid, decent housing for the most part. Some of it was actually very, very lovely, the arts and crafts. Uh, cottage estates and so on but there was but given the scale there was a lot of criticism about the kind of mass and uniformity of it and certainly Bevan in particular was concerned uh, had showed real concern to build uh, high quality housing varied housing meeting a range of social needs and types um, and of course he was also very insistent on on uh, in enhanced space standards uh, famously bevan houses uh three-bedroom house over 1000 square feet um which was about a 30 percent increase on pre-war standards uh two toilets two inside toilets for a three-bed house which was an unprecedented luxury for the for the working class so bevan i think uh was concerned really to build high quality housing and of course his vision also was not not to build just for the working class but to build for a cross-class community to build housing, to serve generally. Li- what's his phrase? The living tapestry of a mixed, commu- of a mixed community. Absolutely, the living tapestry of a mixed community. He, he, how, how successful was that? Um, 
Well, I think I think in the in the in the unprecedentedly sort of harsh conditions of genuine austerity in that post-war era, uh, real economic problems and dislocation, uh, and actually a real necessity to prioritise economic reconstruction. Uh, I think what Labour achieved in that in that government was actually pretty remarkable. They built eight hundred and five thousand council homes and in five years and a bit. Yes. Yeah. And certainly the the quality of those homes, I think, is and the space standards were were the highest ever reached. In fact, so those those estates, those homes, still look pretty good. And then roll on, nineteen fifty one to nineteen sixty four. The Conservatives are in power. Harold Macmillan is the Housing Minister and then Prime Minister. Is that continuation? Um, is it uh, departure? Well, I think, uh, as, the, as the historians say, it's continuity and change. Um, there's certainly continuity. Uh, it's true, uh, and I think this is important, that there was a degree of consensus around the necessity for council housing. Um, uh, and that had been born in the wartime coalition. There were, there were plans and uh, systems set up by the coalition to build housing in that post-war era. Uh, so there was certainly this uh, cross-party consensus um, and of course, in 1951, when the Conservatives fight the general election, they are critical of Labour's housing record. They they say that Labour hadn't built enough, and they commit to building. <laughs> wow, is that amazing? Yeah. Isn't it? They they commit to building 300,000 homes a year. They were describing housing as the first of the social services right. uh, in that 51 manifesto. And in 1953, when they built 313,000 homes, uh, 229,000 of those homes were council homes. Amazing. Wow. Um, and Macmillan certainly uh, committed to really using all the levers of uh, at his disposal in, in terms of quite a corporatist program, really, of, of council house building in that early era. And, you know, we shouldn't romanticise the past, and, and you might want to reflect on some of the mistakes that were made. But one thing that struck me reading your book is that the planners and the architects who were responsible for this housing are, household names might be too strong, but is there this guy Lubetkin, is that right? Um, who, who's, you know, he's a famous architect, I think. I mean, they were sort of known in a way they would, you know, just would be unthinkable today. Uh, yes, I mean, as you say, of course, there's a, very, a, a, a vast range of council housing, not all of it of the best. And uh, I think probably by the 60s and the era of mass public housing, certainly mistakes were made uh, in terms of design and planning and so on. But uh, if you want to look at the best of council housing, there's a, a proud record. And certainly Bertolt Beckham, who famously said that nothing is too good for ordinary people, uh, ab- absolutely exemplified that ideal. And, and he was commissioned by you know, tiny Bethelbing Borough Council in London, Finsbury in London, to build really high-class council estates. Dennis Lasden, who um, designed the National Theatre, later uh, built council housing, designed council housing for Bethnal Green. Uh, and the London County Council Architects Department was the largest architects practice in the world. Over 1,500 people, uh, over 350 qualified architects, 250 working in the housing division, um, and a real uh, commitment uh, in the words of Sandy Wilson, in fact, who went on to, t- who worked for the LCC Architects Department, who went on to design the British Library, a real commitment to win the peace and build uh, high quality housing. And okay, then this so, is the this is where the story takes yeah, a turn for so, the worse. So, so what what changed? Was it the, was it the seventies specifically? You, you think of uh, Thatcher and the eighties, but were, were the seeds sown in the seventies? 
Um, I think in a sense the, the seeds were probably sown in the 60s. I mean, I think that the, the, the mass public housing life of the 60s was, was very laudable and really rooted in, a, in, a, in an ambition to, to rid the country of the slums, the scourge of the slums forever. So, so that was the sort of context of that ambition. But sometimes that ambition was slightly overweening and uh, some of that housing became rather uh, monotonous and uh, overbearing. Maybe this is a urban myth, but you couldn't choose the colour of your door or you couldn't, you know, window pane, you know, windows didn't get fixed. Some of that stuff. A sense... Well, that that's certainly true. I think that's that's probably not a myth, but but uh, yeah, pretty true, true. In fact, I mean that that was one of the criticisms made of the sort of pretty paternalistic style yeah. of housing yeah. design and management yeah. that that existed for a long time in in capital housing history. So so it wasn't perfect, and yeah. there certainly was that sense of um, uniformity. I think yeah. which was which yeah. was kind of imposed, um, but uh, and of course, what also happens in the sixties is. Uh, uh, the rise of working class owner occupation. So certainly, in, you know, up up to the into the post war period, council housing was absolutely aspirational housing. It was a step up for all of its new residents. But as owner occupation increases, I think it, it falls slightly, as it were, in the pecking order psychologically. So I think that's one shift that occurs. And then the big shift is which the seeds were sown. But Mrs. Thatcher selling off council houses but also not moving away from building and towards essentially letting housing benefit take up. So the market will provide, basically. Yeah, that's the big shift. I mean, 79 absolutely is a turning point. Uh, right to buy obviously plays a huge role. Since then, we've lost some 2.5 million council homes. And as you, as you mentioned, uh, we've stopped building uh, council social housing on, on any kind of a scale that, we, that was required. Mrs Thatcher had an absolute abhorrence of council housing. She thought it created dependency. She thought it promoted Labour voting. Um, so there's a Which very- George Osborne or David Cameron was supposed to have said to Nick Clegg as well, actually. Nick Clegg tells the story of saying to them, why don't we build more council housing? And they said, and it's either he says he can't remember whether it was Osborne or Cameron saying it just creates Labour voters. It's a petri dish for Labour voters, yeah. I think is the quote. Yes, absolutely. So there were very powerful political um from a conservative point of view, are really kind of uh, powerful political objections to to council housing as such, uh, and there was the belief. I mean, uh, from from their perspective, uh, a benign belief in the efficacy of the free market. Let, let me ask you a question, which perhaps I should be answering, not you, but but which is this: Why do you think it didn't change under the Labour government of nineteen ninety seven to two thousand and ten? I mean, I'm very proud of the investment we did in decent homes because there was big investment i see that in my constituency bringing millions of homes social homes up to a decent standard but we just didn't build yeah well i, 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 I you're gonna ask me aren't you i would i would love to hear your answer to that no i think there were a lot of factors i think you know not least of course was prudence was was yeah. was, was, the, was the commitment to uh low low yeah, public think, spending yeah it was also ideological i think i think in a way sorry to interrupt you but i, th- I sort of think it was the 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 shadow of Mrs. Thatcher's philosophy, which was, look, it's not for the business of the state to keep building to to build homes that the market can do that, or maybe housing associations, and you know the the legacy of the bad things that had got the the sort of mistakes that we made in socialising the combination of those two things sort of in a way, you know, because there was investment after all that went into health and education and so on, it just didn't go in in the same way. 
to housing, although there was investment, but it was for more bringing homes up to a decent standard. Yeah, no, no, I'd agree with that. And I think that's, that, that, that's pretty honest. Um, it's absolutely the case that New Labour did, I think, inherit some uh, ideas and attitudes from um, previous Conservative governments. Um, I think specifically it was fairly hostile, well, actually pretty hostile to Labour local government and, and, and house, Labour housing departments or housing departments more generally, which they saw as kind of bureaucratic and, and inefficient. Um, and there was absolutely a belief, I mean, a kind of third sector belief in the role of housing associations and, and, and a, a belief that they would be more kind of agile and responsive and, and perhaps more closer to sort of uh, tenant uh, resident concerns than, than uh, housing departments had proved, proven to be previously. And... It's obviously not gone so well. We've got a big housing crisis, which we're going to be talking to Saeed Avasi and Jim O'Neill about shortly. Do you think the cycle is changing? Do you think we're seeing a change in the mood? I think we are. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling positive. There's a lot to do. We we're, we're, we're obviously have Brexit to cope with in the meantime. Um, but I think the, the mood music has definitely changed. You know, there was there was a, a post war cons- a, a broad post war consensus for for forty for forty years or so after after the after forty five, which uh, saw a positive role for the state uh, in in many in many fields, but not least housing. Uh, and as we've kind of noted, that that um, belief had had certainly uh, been eroded by the by the mid seventies, and Thatcher I think personifies that shift. Um, I think now forty years. And I've got to use the jargon. I'm not. I don't pick like the word neoliberalism. It gets kind of banded about, but in the sense of this retreat of the state, this sort of yeah. disdain yeah. for for the proper yeah. role of the state, uh, that that has been uh, a powerful force in the last f- four decades. And I think uh, housing is a prime example of this. I think there's now a, a, a quite a strong understanding that actually, as we have in the past, we need the state. We need the the power. And the investment of of the state um, to actually safeguard conditions for ordinary people in a way that the private sector, particularly in housing, simply is unable to do. And and, it, and if it happens, what lessons are there from history about how to do or what what not to do with social housing? Well, I think uh, the lesson is always going to be uh, is don't 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 skimp. Um, it's it's always been a problem with with uh, council housing that uh, whatever the good intentions of the planners and architects that we've talked about, uh, some of that has been uh, sold short by a failure to invest fully and, and and adequately. So I think you have to invest. And of course, it is an investment. It's not an expense. It's not a cost. It's uh, something that pays pays off dividends in 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 the longer term. Um, so you have to you have to spend. Um, you should. Always prioritise design and planning, and I think uh, we we need to change the 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 idea of council housing, social housing. Uh, I think we've we've seen it as housing of last resort. It's become yeah. at least it's become yeah. seen as housing of last resort. It's become seen as the kind of safety net for yeah. the poorest. And I think uh, given the spectrum and broad spectrum of need uh, for public housing, social housing, I think we need to make sure that it does actually have a mixed community as it certainly did in the past. Thanks so much for joining us, John Bowden.
We're going to speak now to Baroness Saeed Avasi, who is also part of the Social Housing Commission. Uh, hello, thank you for joining us. And um, f- first of all, we've had a lot of Ed's former colleagues on the podcast, but we haven't really had so many people from the other side of the political divide. How, how, how was he f- to be across the other side from? Uh, hi, Jeff. Are you mean, uh, so today you're interviewing Ed's former enemies? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I... I was chairman of the party, uh, of course, when uh, when Ed was leader of the uh, Labour Party. And so I'm sure we had our fair share of uh, political uh, knockabout. Uh, but I think what was important was, and I think this is why the, you know, the work that we've been doing recently on the Shelter Commission worked, is that uh, ultimately you have to find politicians who are prepared to find solutions to things. And we may come at it from ideologically different viewpoints, but as long as we're both trying to find a solution, and I think certainly with the Shelter Commission we were, uh, you can find friendships across the political divide. And I certainly hope that Ed uh, can put some of that past behind us. Absolutely. And we always used to get on quite well anyway, <laughs> didn't we, Saida? And I, we and I think it's true to say that you, if I hope I'm allowed to say this, you turns out that there were some of the nastier press releases from the Conservative Central Office you, you, you vetoed, didn't you? this term red egg I just thought it was silly and I thought it was childish and I just and so my constant view was let's have a go at him about what his policies are but let's not call names I mean we're not back in the playground you left that to Michael Fallon <laughs> yeah well I, you know he was far better at this than I was and and so you know I'd go in and I'd see this press release and then I'd think oh god we can't put that out I'm not prepared to put that out in my name so I think yeah I think I was a bit of a wet Tory to say the least <laughs> Um, press releases. Uh, so, so let's talk about the commission. I thought uh, first I could ask you where you were in terms of it when you went in to the commission versus how, how where, where you're at now. Honest when I went into this commission, I fundamentally believe that the market should be left to act to solve these issues. And I didn't feel that the state or a mass house building exercise by the state uh, should be the solution. But I also went in with the view that I would follow the evidence. And I, and I think the lawyer in me was clear that we needed to see what the, what the evidence was. We needed to hear testimonies from people who were uh, in the circumstances where they wouldn't, they, these were not people who just couldn't afford to buy, but couldn't even afford to rent. And I think for me, one of the real eye-openers was people in who were renting in older age, uh, private renters in older age, who were going to have more specific and complex needs the older they got. And yet we weren't thinking about what provision of housing would be there for them. Um, and at that point, I think it became fairly obvious that the market had failed and the, the market wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be able to provide a solution to young people who are now tragically paying nearly up to 80% of their income on rent, to people who are now in their 30s who can't ever consider buying their own home, uh, and people who are um, in, their, uh, in older life who aren't going to be able to afford to rent, never mind buy. And the social mobility story, which I talk about often, Jeff, you know, it's something I'm incredibly proud of. You know, when I say that I was the daughter of an immigrant mill worker, uh, you know, who through sheer hard work was, you know, could achieve absolutely anything. I, I had to acknowledge that I don't think as politicians we can look people like me in the eye anymore and say, actually, if you're just prepared to work hard, it will all work out. And one of the largest factors to that is the way in which the housing market has failed. I mean, if you take the example, Jeff, that when I started my first job as a young lawyer, my uh, first home that I bought in my 20s was two and a half times my annual salary. 
And yes, you could say, well, that was in Yorkshire. It was in a small town in Yorkshire. But even in small towns in Yorkshire, there is no way as a young graduate, as, even as a young lawyer, that you're going to be able to buy a house, which is going to be two and a half times your salary. You know, that opportunity to buy your own house and move on is simply not there. So, so why then social housing and not products like Help to Buy? Because I think we have realized that the amount of money that we've spent on help to buy hasn't resolved the issue. And also there is a, there is the reality of the fact that some people aren't going to be able to afford to buy. But there's also the reality that some people aren't going to be able to rent. So we have to create a market where people can rent in an affordable way. And the private sector is simply not going to be able to do that. We've seen in the way in which we've now sunk so much housing benefit money, taxpayers' money into encouraging people into the private sector, which hasn't led to a better quality of life for the individuals and hasn't in the long term and will not in the long term lead to a saving for the taxpayer. And that's why, having considered all those options, I was happy to support what effectively will become the largest, and if you know, if any government was to take this on, and I sincerely hope they do, the largest house building exercise after the Second World War. We just talked to John Bowton, who's done this history of council housing called Municipal Dreams. And one of the things that's really striking, which you and I have discussed, is the way after the Second World War, there was that cross-party kind of, you know, almost competition to see who could build more houses. The Labour government built 800,000 houses, council homes in five years. And John was just saying to us in 1951, the Tories said you didn't build enough. Um, You know, do you think, do you detect in the Conservative Party a a sort of op- openness. I don't mean to necessarily every dot and comma specific of the, every number, but an openness to this to this way of thinking. Do you think that's possible? I do, and I've certainly spoken to colleagues who, like me, acknowledge that, that you know the market has failed, and we can't simply sit back and 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 say that uh, council house building is something of of the past. And that's why I think there have been specific policy initiatives where, when council houses have been sold, conservative colleagues have championed that. Therefore, in exchange for that, more council houses have to be built. So I definitely sense there's a change. And I as I, and I, as I said uh, on the day of the launch, Ed, I think it's important for us to take the politics out of this. I think the reason why the the Shelter Commission report worked was because it wasn't about blaming which government had done which government had done what. Actually, we all acknowledge that all governments hadn't done enough in the last 40 years. And therefore, I think it would be good for us to move to a point to say we all have to change. And this has got to go beyond party politics. This is actually about the very fabric of our society and the cohesiveness of our society. Otherwise, we're going to be left with a whole generation of people, people who were born into the circumstances that I was born in, who are going to be left with a sense of hopelessness and housing is going to be the basis of that. Well, Saida, I can say it was an absolute pleasure to work with you on the commission. Uh, We're really grateful to you for joining us. And, you know, I look forward to us working together in the coming months and years to persuade whatever party to take up these proposals. I do too. It was great working together, Ed. Did you just say Red Ed? Sorry, the line. line, line, line. (laughs) It was great to work together. Never changed, is it? What can I say? <laughs> Thanks so much, Saida. Thank Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined in Lloyd Towers uh, by Jim O'Neill, Lord O'Neill of Gatley. That's me. Uh, who was another one of my fellow commissioners. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. My pleasure. And it was a pleasure to work with you on the commission. I thought one thing that it would be worth talking to you about is the economics of this uh, commission. You, you are the man who famously coined 
the term the BRICS. That's it. The BRIC countries. Stamps on my forehead. Brazil, Russia, India, China. I'm very impressed that you can cite them so quickly. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Talk to us about your experience on the Commission, why you think it's important, but also about the economics of it. By the sheer size, sorry, number of new social homes we're calling for, 3.1 million in 20 years, the scale of ambition that goes with that, it, it, it obviously suggests right at the core the whole approach to thinking about housing in the UK has got to change. And that's what I love. And of course, for many people, and probably current policymakers and senior civil servants, like, oh God, that, you know, that seems a little bit big. But I think if you've got coherence around big picture things, that's how you actually start to get stuff done. And I think it's fair to say that you and I were, I mean, pushing an open door, but both of us were urging ambition yes. in, during the course of the commission. I think yeah. both you and yeah. I recognise that we need this, that, you know, for an outside, you know, charity to be doing a report, there was no point in doing something which was just sort of stuck in the weeds no. of government. That was one of the things I really liked about uh watching how you operated that we, we we clearly without talking about it privately we shared this and it was so obvious to me we had to do that otherwise it and it it is a risk that it'll just gather dust anyhow as with yeah. any of these things and we've got to make sure it doesn't but if we wouldn't have done something like this it would have done but there is something also isn't there that speaks to your sort of expertise which is the sort of economic question about this and whether and you and i've discussed this about yeah. seeing council housing as a sort of asset just right. talk to us about this this so notion we, look, of infrastructure, capital investment, and asset. So the other thing that there's two or three things that really struck me from let's call it forty thousand feet stuff. First of all, why is housing not regarded as an asset in the same way that uh, HS2 or Crossrail yeah. would be? Doesn't really make a lot of sense. And one of the big things that I think. Shelter's got to get some supporters on and not lose the momentum and, and some of us commissions maybe can help a little bit is to get the infrastructure commission that's what three years old which is a government body that's looking at government body to supposedly have independent analysis of what's important for Britain's infrastructure housing is not on it and this has never been the case it, it was deliberately excluded I didn't know by that, my boss George Osborne when, in my extensive seventeen months as a minister in the treasury, because uh, he, I suspect, he deliberately worried that it would complicate their politics. I don't know, um, but it was, and it, it doesn't. And I, I, I tried to resist. It. I said, it doesn't make sense for the reason you just said. And the the second thing which goes with it, which dawned on me, and I, and I, I, you know, housing isn't something I've spent a lot of time thinking about in the past. But when you you look at the kind of basic evidence presented to us early on, it really seems to me like we've had an elastoplast policy thing, as we have on so many other things. But for the past forty odd years, that there's not really been a forty thousand feet policy ever since Maggie Thatcher first decided to it would be cool to have people who live in council houses own them that's been the end of any thoughts about housing policy yeah. and and we've ended up with all these people this horrific rise in uh, private rentals for people that can't really afford to live in a lot of these places not as a deliberate intention but just as a partly as a consequence of that and of course people can't afford to buy their own so it go what what that number does is goes right to the core of actually something way beyond just social housing, uh, uh, fundamentally dealing with Britain's post, post-1960s housing dilemmas, in my view. Uh, on the surveying they did, I think it's 31,000 people, 
every time they did it, it kept coming back that people that lived in these private rentals were a lot more cheesed off with life than people living in social homes. So yeah. from a, when you think about it as an economist, sort of classic market failure. So it's, a, you know, obviously you've got to look at the price of the intervention. But Why is that a market failure? Because you've got, a lo- you've got a load of people being forced into an outcome that there's no real benefit Oh, I see, from. I see, yeah. Uh, and it's co- and because of welfare payments and the huge welfare bill that's grown with it, it's all being done to support people living in a situation they don't really want to live in. So a more basic thing is, well, why don't you just change the fundamentals so you don't have to spend all that money on what, from a macroeconomic perspective, would probably be regarded as money with no real multiplier effects. Uh, and it's just sort of givens for maintenance. And it doesn't so really... subsidy to housing yeah, benefit as opposed to infra- investment in yeah, bricks and mortar, yeah, a, which does have a, what you yeah, call so a, a multiplier effect. It's a classic sign of, of, of what many economists might regard as wasted government spending in that it's, uh, if you go back to Gordon Brown's golden rule, it would be in the category of non-investment spending. And what you really want to do is make sure if you are going to use government money wisely, I think is spend more on investment. And if you did that with social housing in the way the shelter recommendations are saying, that would be more rational. And the, and this investment thing, you get money back in rents from tenants, obviously, mm-hmm. from having the asset. You save money in housing benefit spending because it costs less to rent in yep. the social sector than the private sector. And also you get tax revenues. Right. So uh, not surprisingly, and 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 it's good to see that the team are up front about the, the annual cost of the investment is, I think it's 10.8. Yeah. But when you include all the things you've just said, that comes down to 3.7, I think it was. So close to close to a third of the actual annual outlay. And so that over 20 years, uh, you know, in a normal place, wouldn't be regarded, you know, that's what, 70 billion-ish? That isn't dramatic. And a, a dangerous analogy because, it, you know, as I heard you uh, interviewed on on today when it came up about HS2, that is in the ballpark of of what's being going to be spent mm. on HS2, and it shouldn't be one or the other. Mm. But uh, the broader issue that we haven't touched on yet, which I suspect is is a really important one, we have this horrific ongoing productivity problem in the UK. Latest numbers just published this morning, really weak again. And 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 many, that's the amount of output per per yeah, person. Yeah, we 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 seem to produce uh, marginally, increasingly less with more and more people, and uh, some of the reason behind that is almost definitely wrapped up in problems to do with the housing market. So, doing something substantial about housing will almost definitely have a, a major strategic or structural positive influence on. And that's about what making it easier for people to move around or so how, how does that work it's, it it would if it would make it easier for people to move around and with it make it easier for them to choose other aspects of their life a lot more easily than it is now uh i heard uh an interview uh, as part of me being interviewed on the bbc yeah. about this uh with some uh woman that had to move from birmingham to cornwall right uh <laughs> Yeah. And you know, and and they had to completely change yeah. uh, many aspects of their life purely on the basis of finding somewhere to live they could afford. Yeah, part of me thought, hmm, Cornwall's probably nicer than Birmingham, anyhow. But uh, but you know, this you know, yeah. multiply that by millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now this report is uh, interesting, and but but you were also interesting in your career because 
you you did all this work as an economist at Goldman Sachs yeah. and so on. You then got tempted into you worked on the Northern Powerhouse, got tempted into government by George Osborne. Yeah. But as you've said at the shelter launch and have repeated since, you know, you've never been a member of the Tory party. <laughs> never been a member of any political I've never party. never been a member of any political party. You wrote a piece in the FT which, which oh, in God. September which got a lot of uh, yeah. attention yeah. in the <laughs> sort of chattering... Uh, I believe I got a mention in Jeremy Corbyn's speech. You got a speech. mention, I forgot about that. You got a mention in <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn's speech. And the headline oh, was, dear, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just sort of uh, finding it here, the headline is, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour looks poised to shake up the status quo. The UK opposition steps into an economic void left by a government uh, grappling with Brexit. Mm. I mean, talk talk to us about your sort of evolution, your thinking, mm. and and sort of you know how you square you, what you've done with the mad world of politics. Yeah. So um, when I left, my I had, you know I was in finance for over thirty years, and when I decided to leave, I, I had no idea what I was going to do, uh, and I, I sort of dreamt up this phrase: "If it can't be better, it's got to be different." Without really knowing what yep. it meant, but it was a. It was a I'm, bit of a, I'm still working on that. <laughs> and uh, the first thing that appealed, because it was so different, was to uh, lead this independent review into uh, urban growth and do try and come up with ideas about the excessive dependency on London. And that's what sort of it's the first time I'd really devoted any part of my time of thinking purely about public policy, and I, I enjoyed it. And that that is indeed where the Northern Powerhouse idea came from. And to my astonishment, uh, when the Conservative Party surprisingly won uh, the election, which I think you were involved I was part in, of, yeah. uh, to my uh, slight amazement, uh, George Osborne asked me to become a minister to actually yeah. help him implement yeah. it. And uh, he'd already adopted it six months earlier, as you'd know. And uh, I, 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 I wasn't sure that I should, partly because I'm not, uh, you know, most people would normally associate me more uh, left of centre than right, uh, but the whole world of that, I, I, you know, I'm sure I didn't know anything about. And it. what was the experience like of being in government? Uh, I have absolutely no regrets that I decided sure. to do it, particularly because of uh, to whatever the rights and wrongs of people's views, your audience, yeah. and George. Uh, he 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 was serious about this, uh, and I know a lot of people. I've seen so much said about how opportunistic he was trying to be and all the rest of it, but I didn't really care about that. The, sure, fa- sure. the fact it was giving such major priority and because he was so close with David Cameron yeah. became a you know a major focus. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, if I say no, I might sure. spend the rest of my life regretting it. Sure. And it was it was really quite enthralling that that as soon as I got in, it was quite clear that not only did a lot of people in the public think that, quite a lot of the other cabinet. Uh, members didn't really think it was very serious. Right. And so I was part of everybody realising it was something they were trying yeah. to be serious about. So that was really quite exciting. And you could tell it, you'd know way better than me, the way the, uh, the, the civil service system works. Once the officialdom got wind that this was something serious, immediately they all started focusing on it. So it was kind of a lot of fun. And then Theresa May took And then over. we had the referendum. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, life in general went downhill. Yeah. But, uh, and you decided to jack it in. So, I, I, strangely, in a way, uh, I was asked to stay on. Yeah. And one of the things uh, the new PM said was uh, to continue with your good work on the Northern Powerhouse. So I thought, okay. Because uh, I didn't want to leave. Then I, my, sure. my life would be permanently associated with George and nothing else. Sure. Uh, so, I, I decided to do so. But it became evident to me within weeks that her team weren't serious about things in the way that I thought they should so I didn't stay around very long and then you've been 
you know, in this piece in the FT, yeah. which quoted by Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. as you reminded me at conference, yeah. you were very positive about. Just, just talk to us about the state of the so, country, so, because never mind the politics. So, kind of where that where that came from. Uh, it's quite funny as all these things are really. That, so, partly this this one origin of there's two origins. One is my that having lived through the crisis at Goldman Sachs, uh, but also the financial crisis, the financial crisis, two thousand seven eight, and uh, when I left. I did an interview with the FT, and and the thing that the headline they picked up on, they asked me what was the biggest message I want to give people from Goldman. And I said, not enough people go on the tube. And that actually was a headline, and it annoyed a lot of my senior people, colleagues there. And and I said, you know, it was a great, fantastic place to work, and, and it was very uh, very flat structure. So, and so people that perform well, you know, whatever, it was fun. But everybody sort of, spent 16 hours a day working like lunatics and sort of had this very mm. nice life of how they got there and went to really good. And they thought that was life for everybody. Yeah. And they didn't really have a lot of communicate contact with normal people. And that's, that's uh, hence we should get on the tube a bit more. We need what I call it profit with purpose. And, and what's come up over the past 25, 30 years of modern international capitalism is the pursuit of profit just for the sake of, of that and uh it first of all that doesn't make a lot of sense from from pure economic theory the whole the whole free market thinking is eventually you have so many new market entrants that it, it erodes all the profit and with it you get a lot more investments and neither of those two things are going on so there's something a bit wrong about how uh compliance and regulation has developed and and certainly the incentive and reward system so a lot of that has, has started to influence me a lot. For my generation, and it, it kind of seems crazy to say two and a half years post-Brexit and all the things with Trump and everything else that's gone, they, sort of, they still sort of think that everything that's gone wrong is because of policymakers and that business is sort of, you know, it's not our fault. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So that's what I, that was what indirectly was behind some of the stuff that indirectly led to me writing that piece, that I think the Corbyn thing buys into some realisation that, you know, there's something, even all you guys that thought all crazy lefties were, were left in the 60s, they've, they've bought into something. Mm. And uh, that's really what it was all about. What job do you think we should give Jim in the Jeffocracy? Do you know about the Jeffocracy? No, what is the, the Jeffocracy? The Jeffocracy is Jeff as the Supreme. We're yeah. doing this in Stoke Newington, so it's got to be cool. Yeah, exactly. It is. I'm, a, I'm a very hands-off, benign dictator. Oh. Uh, I, mean, I, I sort of think you could give him any job. Well, I'm to thinking long-termism, because so, yeah. I'm listening oh, to this. You, might, you might have to just send me away somewhere. Minister for yeah. Long-Term Planning. Yeah, because uh, I'm listening good. to this, and I'm, when, you, when you talk about both your experiences... In, in government and your experiences on, on commissions and then yeah. your experience in the private sector, it just seems to me people just can't think that far Minister ahead. for 40,000 feet. Yes, exactly. Yeah, minister at 40,000 feet. Quite you would hover feet. over the earth quite, in quite, an airship. Yeah. All right, I'll sign up for that. Good. I'll, you know, I think it's, uh, it is a, it, it is, in a way, some part of it is the dilemmas of a, de a democracy like ours. The system makes it difficult to do that. You, you must have experienced yeah. that. Um, but we need to get beyond that. So you need the political will, but you also need the ability to be able to think uh, big picture and not get thrown off the following month 
um, which of course by de- is easier to say, and but it's important to have some clear things and people stick to them. My view. Jim O'Neill, Lord O'Neill, Minister at so forty thousand feet in the in the <laughs> Jeffocracy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure to work with you on the commission. Yeah, is that, you have a lot of flaws in this house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't think it was 40,000 feet. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. So what do you think? I mean, I think it sounds brilliant, uh, and it sounds like it would fix so yeah. many underlying problems. As you said before, it touches on so many different areas. It's just the hope that a government would be bold enough to commit to something which wouldn't necessarily bear fruit in the time they were in government. You're talking about things that can make a difference in 15 or 20 or 30 years. Probably that's true. Although the government that did this, think about how we're talking about Nye Bevan or Harold McMillan. The government that did this, I mean, this isn't the reason to do it because you want to do it to make the country better, but would go down in history. You know, in 20 or 30 years' time, we'd be talking about that government like we talk about them, wouldn't I we? I know, but do you think they're more interested in being talked about in 20 or 30 years' time oh, or, or keeping their jobs at the next election? Probably keeping their jobs at the right, next election. But, but, you know, I mean, look, the other thing is there are straws in the wind which are positive on this. Theresa May did lift the borrowing cap on local authority. Borrowing is not nearly enough. Labour's got a, a, a big, a relatively big programme uh, of council house building. And this um, commission is across the political spectrum And this as well. commission is so across the political spectrum. Thing. And I think it sort of is... You know, there is a it is going with the grain of the fact that the mood is changing, as I think you know, Jim and Saida uh, reflected, and also John, you know, the uh, historian, sort of implying that the mood was changing. So, and and I sort of feel like even in a what was good was that even in a sort of Brexit dominated political environment, I do feel this sort of landed and was noticed. And hopefully that's a sign that it will be taken seriously. But I'm going to carry on campaigning on it, working with Shelter, because I think now, in a way, the hard work starts to to keep this on the agenda. Well, I look forward to seeing what happens next. So we should thank our guest then, John Boughton, uh, whose book is called Municipal Dreams. It's about the history of council housing in this country. Also, Lord Jim O'Neill and Baroness Saeed Avasi. Yeah. I've just realised I've done what you usually do. I've thanked the guests. So now you can do what I usually do and and, uh, and and thank all the people who make the podcast possible. Well, I'd like to thank Emma Corsham, our producer. Uh, I'd like to thank Gail Lofthouse, our brilliant announcer. We all love Gail Lofthouse. Ed Seed, who did our music. James Deakin, who did our idents. And Emily. Emily Power! <laughs> I will do what you do every week. Yeah, that was quite... <laughs> I, now I can see why it might be quite disconcerting. <laughs> He's been more Ed. He's been less Jeff. And these have been Reason to be Cheerful. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.